I am Cheryl Witten, and this is The Aromatherapist, where we discover the superpower of plants. Have you ever been curious about aromatherapy and did a simple internet search, landed on a result and thought, that can't be right? The sad truth is most of the information out there about aromatherapy is not correct. It's my mission to change that. Join me in my new course, The Science of Aromatherapy, and learn about the science and chemistry of essential oils, drug interactions, safety considerations, contraindications, and botanical profiles of the 10 most popular essential oils. Visit livelovelemon.com forward slash science course to enroll. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, I want to cover a really big topic concerning essential oils and cancer. Somewhere you've probably read about essential oils being the cure for cancer. This is a huge topic with a lot of really strange stuff disseminated on the internet and on social media. I've seen some really weird ideas out there. So I just want to kind of talk about this topic today. One of the questions that's often asked is, can we use essential oils to treat cancer? Are they an actual treatment for cancer? Can we even use them? Is it safe to use them? How do they work? So I want to go over these questions. And I also want to go over what the science and the research says. Do plants even work in the treatment of cancer? And what are some of the safety considerations? And what is fact and fiction? So the very first thing to address is that cancer is complicated. We all know this. We could probably say that everybody knows someone who has been affected by cancer. And, you know, science has made a lot of leaps and discoveries over the years about how to treat cancer and what what can be done about it. But the very first thing in relation to essential oils is that it is very complicated. Every case of cancer is different. And just as the physicians seem to figure it out, it changes. So most of us understand cancer. We understand that it's cells in the body that continue to divide abnormally. We understand there's something wrong with the cell. We understand that there's something has gone awry and these cells continue to divide instead of die. So in our normal health, in a optimal health situation, our genes tell our cells when it's time to grow and divide. And healthy cells make replicas of themselves And the system does this really just to replace damaged or aging cells as it's needed. With cancer cells, the gene has a mutation. This can be something we inherit or it can be caused by things that damage the genes. So things like cigarette smoke or UV radiation or chemicals like asbestos and benzene, formaldehyde, for example. And those mutations can turn a healthy cell into a cancer cell. And so the cells behave incorrectly. So normally a cell grows, divides, and then it dies. But cancer cells don't know when to stop replicating or dividing or when to die. So they just keep dividing out of control. They also don't always stick together very well, so they can easily spread throughout the body. And these cells have the same needs as a healthy cell in that it wants to grow and survive and will cause the body to bring blood to it so that it has this oxygen supply and a supply of nutrients. So generally, cancer cells need glucose or sugar, extra oxygen, and hormones. And eventually, the cells continue to grow and divide and grow into a tumor. And as that tumor grows, it will require more blood supply in order to continue to grow to continue to have those nutrients, to continue to get that extra oxygen, that extra glucose. And so 
The cancer cells will release chemicals that act as signals for that tumor to make more blood vessels. And so more blood supply of oxygen and nutrients means growth and survival for the cancer. So cancer is always just trying to grow. It's always trying to continue to divide and survive. So this process of of these blood vessel development is called angiogenesis. And that tumor then can actually, as it creates these blood vessels, it can actually begin to grow into the tissue around it. And through this blood vessel development as well, the more blood vessels we bring to that tumor, and because these cancer cells do not, are not that sticky, let's call it, and can actually spread very easily, and the more blood vessels that are there, the cells are actually able to get into the blood more easily and spread throughout the body. And so as they break away from the tumor and spread to other parts of the body through the blood or the lymph, this is called metastasis. So there's lots of other reasons why cancer can develop, but one thing we do know is that chronic inflammation in the body can also be a reason for cancer development. And the inflammation can result from chronic infections or autoimmune disease, for example. So for example, chronic H. pylori infection, which is a bacterial infection in the gut, can elevate the risk for gastric cancer. Unresolved chronic inflammation and autoimmune disease also can also result in cancer development. So for someone like me who has Hashimoto thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid disease, and basically inflammation in the thyroid caused by my own immune system, there is an increased risk of developing thyroid cancer if the inflammation isn't addressed. For a thyroid disease, the patient is taking a thyroid hormone supplement. But that doesn't address the immune problem. It doesn't address the fact that the immune system is attacking the thyroid, that those, those antibodies are binding to the thyroid gland and actively destroying it, which is why we need thyroid supplementation, the hormone supplementation. It doesn't address that issue. And so even though you're supplementing with hormones, that active attack is still going on. It's still creating inflammation. If I'm not addressing that, it's still happening, even if I am supplementing the hormone that the thyroid needs and the body needs to function. And we have that chronic inflammation. We do know that people who have one autoimmune disease have a risk of developing another one because the immune system is so confused. So it's recognizing its own tissues as non-self and binding to the wrong tissue, trying to kill it. That person with an autoimmune disease is at a higher risk of developing a cancer. And part of healthy treatment is is looking at cancer prevention as well. Anyway, I digress on thyroid disease, but only to speak about inflammation as well as the immune system. So there are many pieces to cancer, and one of the most confounding pieces is that immune system. And our immune system is generally responsible for identifying foreign cells, bacteria, viruses, defective cells, problems within the body and and eliminating them from our systems. And it's part of how the body heals itself. Most of the time, the body actually uses pieces of the immune system to actually detect and protect against mutations and to protect against cancer development. But once cancer starts, the cells kind of avoid or fly under the radar of the immune system. And that's sort of a two-edged sword in treatment. So the ultimate goal is really to get the immune system to wake up and notice that there's cancer there and fight for itself. But it's complicated. So once you sort of develop this tumor, tumors create their own little bubbles, essentially. And it's called the tumor microenvironment. And this, this little environment contains 
enzymes and immune cells and growth factors and a whole bunch of other stuff that send signals out. And generally speaking, the purpose of it is to promote tumor growth. So when doctors and different technicians analyze those types of cells found in that microenvironment, they can actually determine the prognosis based on the type of immune cells, the different types of things that are in there, but also treatment because they can target certain types of those immune cells or certain enzymes, for example, and try to knock down the things that are either stopping the immune system or helping that tumor grow. So if you can stop either of those problems then you can, you can sort of target it a little bit better. But often current protocols usually involve chemotherapy and those are toxic to cells and that the whole point of that is to destroy the cancer cell. But what it also does is destroy the immune system. So it's kind of one of those two-edged treatments as well. We're trying to figure out a way to get to all those cancer cells that are very effectively hiding from the immune system. So we've got to basically get the whole system. But at the same time, then we're very prone to infection. We've got to rebuild the immune system. It's a two-edged sword. And so outside of the immune system, there are also other protective defense mechanisms. And one very important piece is the detoxifying enzymes. Glutathione enzyme systems are critical in removing and detoxifying carcinogens and other compounds. So the enzymes are a catalyst for getting glutathione to attach to compounds. So that's sort of like glutathione is sometimes called your master antioxidant and it attaches to those compounds and helps remove them from the body. So this system is a key piece of eliminating those cells, maybe even in the pre-cancer stage or as the body recognizes those cells, then this system can actually detoxify them right out of the body and help eliminate them. But as cancer develops, glutathione can actually also be protective of cancer and we see that in some data. So again, this is a system that we have to be careful with as well. All right, so let's get back to essential oils and plants as it relates to cancer. So the first point is that essential oils are not considered a treatment for cancer. This should not be surprising to anyone. It's just the nature of it. There haven't been extensive cancer treatment trials with essential oils. You know, we're just not there. Plants probably are never going to be, especially an essential oil that's directly from a plant, is probably never going to be approved by any health government for an actual treatment program. Let's be real. You know, unless it's synthesized into a drug, it's not going to happen. It's just the nature of it. That being said, there is research on cancer and essential oils, mostly either in animal research or in in vitro research, and as well as a concurrent complementary treatment for other considerations and maybe side effects during cancer treatment. So it's not directly for the cancer itself, but for some of the other things that arise during treatment. So this research allows us to draw some conclusions that can help with safety and recommendations, but also actually tell us how we can effectively use aromatherapy during cancer, if at all. At the end of the day, we truly know very little about actually what it can do. So the first group of oils to talk about is citrus oils. And these are probably the most researched in relation to cancer. So what we see in in vitro data is that citrus essential oils and more specifically the compound limonene, which is found most abundantly in citrus oils, increases the glutathione enzyme system activity. The glutathione content and lipid peroxidation in tumor cells treated with essential oils. 
So what does that mean? It means that it stimulates that detoxification system. It stimulates glutathione in the cell and it stimulates the tissue damage of tumor cells. This suggests that D-limonene and citrus essential oils have an anti-tumor and antioxidant effects, which reduces the viability of cancer cells. So this means that this reduces the ability for cancer cells to continue to grow. If they are not viable, they cannot stay alive. So we talked about how glutathione can be both anti-cancer, but also protective. And so I want to talk about this for a minute. And obviously we don't want anything. We don't want to be using anything that's going to be protective of cancer. And so the question always comes up, if citrus essential oils stimulate the glutathione enzyme activity, the glutathione content, then is that actually a backward step for us? So what's interesting is that other constituents also increase glutathione in healthy cells like eugenol and alpha-humulene. So they, they increase the glutathione, but also decrease it in cancerous cells. So it doesn't always necessarily mean that it's going to cause you to be more protective or your body to be more protective of the cancer rather than helping to eliminate. We're going to get into the difference of opinion in concerning this in a minute, but one thing you need to know is that it is considered controversial to use antioxidants during treatment. And so some oncologists, some care teams will not want you to do this, so you need to check with your professional primary care providers to make sure this is something that they're good with. Some other things we see about essential oils are that they are chemopreventive, and chemotherapeutic. So this means when something is chemopreventive or chemotherapeutic, it means that it can reverse suppress progression to invasive cancer. So essential oils, monoterpene constituents specifically like limonene and geraniol, for example, have these abilities. So it works through a number of different ways, including modulating enzymes and causing apoptosis, which is cell death, and stopping those cells from dividing. It's a rather complicated situation, which we won't go into on a podcast. But for example, sclerol, which is found in clary sage and other essential oils, causes that apoptosis, the cell death. There are also a number of essential oils that have been tested in humans for a variety of cancers, either in vitro or in vivo on human cells, and were found to be effective. So we have things like cedarwood, fir needle, frankincense, garlic, laurel leaf, lavender, lemongrass, melissa, rosewood, tea tree. These are all a different variety of different cancers, the mechanisms of how they work, how effective they were for the type of cancer it was for is all different, so it's going to vary. Additionally, essential oils also affect the immune system. So we talked about this a little bit, and we've talked about this in different episodes, but they stimulate the immune system, which is thought to be a protective mechanism. So if we can get the immune system stimulated enough that it can go after cancer cells, then that is a protective mechanism. That is a way that we can use them to help the body. But on the other hand, essential oils can also produce those immune responses, which are a type of allergic reaction. And so it is because of this sort of unpredictable, as it were, effect that some experts feel that essential oils should be avoided from one week before to one month after chemotherapy or radiation treatment 
or in patients who have organ or tissue transplants who are taking immunomodulatory drugs. Based on this data, they are feeling a little bit nervous about what essential oils might do or how it might interact with some of the treatment going on. However, it is well established that the side effects of chemotherapy and radiation are debilitating on patient health. So some other data and some other renowned experts feel that, and the research indicates that, improving those symptoms improves quality of life and therefore proves how the patient does through treatment. So research shows that using essential oils concurrently with traditional cancer therapy improves the side effects of the therapy. So we're looking here at things like nausea, vomiting, pain, and nerve pain, and anxiety, and insomnia, and depression, grief, loss, those kinds of things that a patient experiences, or fatigue even. Essential oils are shown to help. They are shown to help with the liver, as we've talked about, specifically that glutathione enzyme system, which are shown to help the liver. So we we know that some drug therapies are very hard on the body and very hard on some of our organs, specifically the liver, that has to filter those medications from the system. And so we see that it could be helpful. But in terms of actually treating cancer with essential oils, we just do not have that kind of data. The information tells us that these are promising areas that need more research. That's all it says. It doesn't tell us it's a treatment, but it doesn't mean that they don't have benefits. So helping patients with side effects of treatment, with pain management, with mental health and moods, sleep, emotions, grief, sadness, loss, you know, things like nausea and vomiting or wound care, those can increase the quality of life. And this is very important because we when a patient has a better outlook on life, a better experience in their treatment, they are actually do better. And quality of life is also extremely important for comfort and transition in palliative care. So end stage of life care. This is very important. So we, if we can help improve mental health, then this can help a patient work through emotions like that grief and, la- and loss or fear at the end of their life. And that's very important as well. And can also help the patient's family, even if they're experiencing calming aromas that can help them also being supported in the process as well. So what are some other considerations? Well, undoubtedly, people ask, don't some constituents actually cause cancer? And the research does indicate that some constituents like estragol, safrol, and methyl eugenol are carcinogenic, meaning they may initiate and promote cancer cell growth. So the state of California has regulations concerning ingredients like this and the labeling. And so that, you know, it has to be posted everywhere that certain ingredients may cause cancer. But here's where the conversation fails on this front. And I really want to bring this up because there are also databases out there, ingredient databases who talk about toxicity and specifically about, you know, constituents from essential oils or essential oils in general, but miss this point. Essential oils have hundreds of constituents. Essential oils are synergistic, meaning those constituents all work together to produce different effects. And the multitude of constituents means that a quenching effect can also occur. So what is quenching? Quenching is this phenomenon that happens where one constituent stops the effects of another. So we see this in nutmeg, for example. Nutmeg contains, nutmeg oil contains both safrol and methyl eugenol. So we would assume then that this essential oil is dangerous, right? According to what the data says, this essential oil should be carcinogenic. But 
It also contains higher amounts of limonene and meristocin that are anti-carcinogens. And the data shows that it actually starts that GST activity, the glutathione enzyme system activity, and it stops different kinds of carcinogenesis, so the development of cancer, and has a significant antioxidant activity. So it actually stops or blocks whatever saffron and methyl would actually do. Additionally, constituents like linalool, eugenol, eucalyptol may also block these actions. So essential oils can have all of those constituents in one essential oil, and that can actually block those other actions. So what that means is we can't just say, you know, universally that this constituent causes cancer. Therefore, all oils that have this constituent are bad. And you have to look a little bit deeper than just one constituent because that essential oil can have many different types of constituents that can all block or quench that action. The other important thing to look at is that often the ingredient is synthetic and does not come from a plant, in which case these are manufactured chemicals and they're single ingredient. They do not contain any of that innate intelligence of the other constituents of an authentic plant. And for the record, if you put in synthetic methyl eugenol, but then you add synthetic linalool, it's not going to do what the essential oil does. It's not going to negate, quench that effect. So if you don't have that innate intelligence of the authentic plant, there's not going to be anything there to quench those effects. So that certainly is a concern. Authentic essential oils from a real plant are far more complex than a singular action or mechanism. So we have to know this information. It's, you have to be aware of it. We have to be smart about it. But we also have to know the other side of it. Okay, so the other question that always comes up, what about estrogen cancers or estrogen-sensitive cancers? So I've talked about this briefly in a couple of episodes. Some plants have phytoestrogens. Some constituents in essential oils are phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are naturally existing compounds in plants that behave like estrogen. These are found in foods like potatoes and beets and soy. They're all different types of compounds, not just constituents in organic oils. In theory, there is a possibility that a phytoestrogen could exasperate a tumor. But in reality, when we actually look at how it plays out in health, the affinity for estrogen receptors is also extremely weak, meaning the phytoestrogens bind, but they don't really have much action. So overall, we generally consider essential oils not to be a significant risk for estrogen cancers. So let's talk about some of the overall considerations for essential oils and cancer. Some recommendations are not to use aromatherapy during treatment, but others disagree and instead feel that they can be helpful for reducing side effects of treatment. I tend to fall into this latter category. I personally feel there's, and professionally feel, there's much that can be done and used safely to improve patient quality of life, improve mental health, improve stress reduction, improve nausea and vomiting symptoms, pain, for example. These are not to be used to actually treat the cancer. Please see a proper physician, but to be used as complementary therapies to improve quality of life and stress. I'm also an advocate for a holistic functional approach that complements treatment and includes diet and plant medicines to support the body and the different functions of the body during this process. This should be done, obviously, with a doctor 
And as is usual, it's important to consult with a qualified aromatherapist and pharmacist. Very, very important that your oncologist and primary care team knows of all the other therapies you're using so that they can make appropriate decisions, but also inform you and prescribe you appropriately, as well as your, your aromatherapist, for example, can help you appropriately in relation to medicines and drug interactions. So do essential oils treat cancer? No. At this point in time, no, they do not. We do not have any data that shows that this is a actual treatment. Do they support quality of life? Do they support symptoms as the patient goes through cancer treatment? Absolutely. They can help improve quality of life and improve your mental health and help reduce some of the side effects of the medication you may be on. So as per usual, the internet does not always get it right. It doesn't mean that it's a miracle cure for something. For some people, these may be a piece of the puzzle that was missing that could really improve their experience and add to their treatment program. All right, beautiful people. Thank you so much for listening today. If you feel so inclined, please subscribe, rate, and review this show. For show notes and more information on essential oils, please visit livelovelemon.com forward slash podcast and we love to know what you're up to and how you're using your essential oils so head over to instagram and find us at the aromatherapist podcast my name is cheryl witten and i am your aromatherapist we have to share with you this obligatory disclaimer Information in this podcast is for educational purposes only. It is not a replacement for medical advice or for professional aromatherapy consultation. If you need medical care, please visit your physician. Speak to your primary care provider, pharmacist, and a qualified aromatherapist before commencing any programs.